This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. That's right, Geek Gab for Sunday, July 31st, 2016, episode 62, 62, entitled D&D Dungeons and Dragons. And stranger stuff than you can imagine. But before we get to that stuff, Brian, how was your week? My week was outstanding. And why in specific was it outstanding? Well, other than the Superversive livestream, which I, I missed due to some crossed signals there. Uh, got a lot of work on SoulCycle Book 3 done. Um, you guys out there might notice my new avatar here, designed by my fellow Hugo nominee, Gujudio, who uh, was kind enough to let me bribe him and to take time out from his busy schedule to design it. Um, those of you who've read Soul Dancer will recognize it. Uh, those of you who don't, go, go read Soul Dancer. It's in the link below. Uh, other than that, you both will be glad to hear that last night, went over to a buddy's house, just binged watched all of Stranger Things start to finish. And it was as good as I told you, wasn't it? Indeed. Warpig is right. We're going to have to find some time when Warpig is wrong. Mark it <laughs> on the calendar. Never going to happen. By the way, how was your week, John? Uh, it's been pretty good, aside from a little bit of uh, a head cold this weekend. Um, gaming and geeking. I think uh, most of my spare time these days is um, split between Heroes of the Storm, Dungeons and Dragons, of course, and uh, playing a little Diablo 3 with the wife still. It's a great couch co-op if you've got a PlayStation 4. I, I played all the way through Diablo 3. Maybe it's better with someone else there. Like, physically in the room. There's a lot of games that are boring, like single player, that might be better with someone physically in the room. Absolutely. Absolutely. Diablo 3 is a pretty boring game. Um, but with someone uh, on the couch with you playing along, it's uh, it's good stuff. Now, are you playing, like, the stock Diablo 3, or are you playing it with the expansion pack? It's the expansion. They, uh, they sort of released that expansion on the PS4, and um, so you get all the goodies with it, all the... All the end game stuff that they added, the two new classes, they added the Crusader and the, um, and I don't care. <laughs> the Crusader and the one nobody plays. Yeah. <laughs> Frequently in Blizzard games, at least in the Diablo series, there's that one class that nobody plays, and it's just kind of there, and occasionally you'll find some freak who really is strangely, bizarrely into that class, but nobody else you ever meet will ever play that class. I don't know why it is, but every single Diablo is like that. It's it's like the people in uh, AD&D 2nd Ed who just insist on playing bards for some reason. Oh, yeah, 2nd Edition bards were bad. They were terrible. Uh, bards are always bad, guys. I don't know what you're talking about. I like 3rd Edition bards. Actually, I yeah. liked... 
Even better than 3rd edition bards, though, at least as far as color and flavor goes, were the Book of Eldritch Might bards for 3rd uh, edition designed by Monty Cook under his Malhavik Press imprint. I never got to play them, so I have no idea if they're balanced or not, but the way he did them were really, really interesting, and I loved them. I would have liked to have gotten to play them or to have someone play one in one of my campaigns. Well, well nothing in 3rd ed is balanced. I mean, I, I forget who it was. It might even have been Monty Cook, but... Uh... Somebody broke down all of the classes from the third ed player's handbook into point values. Kind of like for player's option skills and powers and figured out, yeah. okay, how many points is each class worth? And it, there's a huge discrepancy <laughs> where, like, um, I, I think it was Barbarian is like an 80 point character, but a cleric is 150. And a monk is like 180. It's just, there, there, there are classes that are definitely mathematically better than others and see whoever did yeah. that breakdown though is overvaluing a huge basket of miscellaneous powers that don't really add up to much because monks were notorious for being really just pants they were terrible you had a bunch of little tiddly miscellaneous powers that didn't really allow you to do much yeah what, what they were they were bad at fighting bad at Taking hits, bad at. Well, they they were good at making saving throws, guys. That's that's where the monk really shined. They were really good at making saving throws. It depends. It it was. It depends on how you do it. But I mean, a lot of it was easily quantifiable stuff like base attack progression and yes, saving throw progression, hit die. Um, you know how often you get feats. Well, yeah, a lot of that is subjective too. Like you're gonna have to, at a certain point in that process, you're gonna have to assign an arbitrary value for all of those things. You know, our monks were really awesome. Uh, was an AD&D first edition, but it depended on rules that were so unconnected with the class <laughs> and were so obscure and difficult to find that most people forgot about them and never applied them. They had this chart that was um, weapons versus armor type where you would have a bunch of different weapons along one side and a bunch of different armor types along the other, and then you would cross-reference them on this table to find out bonuses that you would get against different armor types. Hideously complex, so you'd have to check every single weapon against every single armor type of every single opponent to see what bonus you got, in addition to your two-hit bonus. Now, that just sounds terribly complex, but this is the neat thing about monks. If you checked out monks... They got massive, unbelievable bonus. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. They got a massive bonus against unarmored people, people who didn't wear any armor. Monks were anti-wizard threshing machines. <laughs> Their role on the battlefield, because they had all of that evasion stuff that led them let them move through frontline fighters was to make a beeline for the wizard and tear all those limbs off. <laughs> I can see that. They actually they do a really good job of that in uh, in third edition as well. Their uh, their big uh, attack bonuses and uh, to thing and their inherent improved grapple ability means that if there's a battlefield wizard, they they just make a beeline for the wizard and pin him down, and that's the end of the fight. Yeah, that's. Uh... When I found that out by someone who's a good friend of mine who actually is working with Ernest Gary Gygax uh, on a module on a mega dungeon called the Memorial Tome, um, he uh, that's uh, Gary Gygax's son. Um, he's working on it right now, uh, and it'll be published sometime soon. 
Um, his name's uh, Benoist Poir. He lives in Canada. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, we used to be bitter, bitter enemies on a message board I joined in 2012, but uh, after about a year of that, he accidentally, uh, I accidentally stumbled into a long-running feud on the board and realized that both sides were saying something really, really stupid, and all I wanted to do was clarify some terminology both sides were misusing. So I went on a rant, if you can believe that. I... Uh, I went on a rant and clarified the terminology, which had the side effect of making the board owner and Benoist and a bunch of other people on the board right. <laughs> I love that. That that reminds me. That reminds me of an XKCD comic um, where it's it's in the wee hours in the morning and the man's furiously typing at, at the computer and his wife pops and says, "Honey, it's it's three in the morning. Come to bed." And he says, "No, I can't. Somebody, somebody is wrong on the, on the internet." internet. <laughs> um. But anyways, I typed that up, and, and ever since then, he's been a good friend of mine because, because of that. Uh, he's the one, though. He's a, he's a big, big fan of old-school D&D. He's a big, big fan of AD&D. And so uh, he's the one who sat down and uh, was posting why those rules matter and pointed that out about the monk, and I thought, well, you know, if those rules hadn't sucked so bad and if Gygax hadn't been such a terrible editor at putting the rules together so you could find them and understand them and comprehend them, maybe AD&D wouldn't have been such a bad game to play. And, and there are so many little rules that impact how AD&D, how first edition uh, play that people just discarded that made the game boring. Rules like reaction rules, which is when you meet a bunch of orcs, Players immediately jump to fight, and then they fight to the death. Well, that's not how AD&D is supposed to be played. When you meet a bunch of orcs, you're supposed to make a reaction roll. The orcs might attack you, or they might be kind of weary. Or they might actually like you. If you get a high enough charisma, they might actually like you, and because they're humanoids with high enough intelligence, they may be willing to bargain with you. They may be willing to sell you intelligence on the gnolls one level down because they hate those freaking gnolls, and they may be able to say, yeah, you know what? We'll give you free passage through our section of the dungeon for 20 copper pieces and a promise you'll kill all the gnolls. All based on a reaction roll. So if you have a hot character with a high charisma in the party, they'll just let you through. And uh, depending on how your game master is doing experience, you may or may not get experience for that. It is... And so just that one rule, if you ignore the reaction rule, you turn Dungeons & Dragons from a thinky strategy game into chop, 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 kill, kill, kill. The other one is the morale rules, which is when you hurt people so bad, they make a morale check, and if they fail, they get the hell out of there. And so instead of kill, 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 kill until everybody's dead, you start the fight, and if they start to take casualties, they begin to flee. Because they're dying. And people always complain, man, D&D sucks. It sucks. It's the worst game in the world, man. I hate D&D because, like, you just line up. You line up in this big row, and the monsters, they you just go down the line taking, you know, chops at each other. I mean, I'm, I'm not making this up. This is a real opinion someone expressed to me once about D&D and AD&D. And you just chop at each other until you die. And it's like, yeah. That's, that's real funny. That's the way you're playing it. Yeah, that that that's real funny. I I actually am encountering that sort of um, uh, attitude uh, in my game because I've got the persistent world with the persistent dungeon uh, that they keep going back to. 
and uh, and there's there's a, a pack of lizard men that they kept interacting with, and it just so happened that all their interactions sort of were positive. Um, they would they, like they would happen upon a battlefield and and like side with the lizard men, and you know the one guy in the in the team who could speak Draconic, he would talk to the lizard men, and um, and so they started trying to bargain with the lizard men. And then after a couple of sessions, they stabbed the lizard men in the back and uh, <laughs> and, and decided to try to wipe out the whole camp. <laughs> and so they had this cool thing going where they had one faction of the dungeon where they were sort of working with. Um, and then after like after they had like a violent clash with a with a um, a patrol, they decided, "Ah, hey, screw them. We're going to try to wipe them all out." Man, players are the best. <laughs> Is "best" the right word? You take that back. But yeah, I've been I've been giving them the opportunity to um, to socially interact with the monsters, you know, whenever uh, reasonable, right? I've been given I've been making morale checks uh, during combat for the monsters all the time. Um, man, those bloodthirsty players, man, they will ju- they will hunt you down. They don't care. <laughs> They're like, I don't want, and, and of course they got a pretense, right? Oh no, I don't want them going back and getting reinforcements. Yeah, we'll have to deal with more guys then. <laughs> or my favorite, my favorite one, guys. The the wizard says, "No, no, that 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 guy that's running away, that's the uh, spellcaster there group. I want his spellbook." <laughs> well, look, D and D is it's a lot like Monopoly, where everybody plays it wrong. Everyone's got these assumptions and homebrewed rules. Uh, Bradford is pointing this out in the chat, and if if you actually sit down, and as as clunky and poorly technically written as the manuals are, if you just read the rules, I mean, it, it, it works. A lot of the clunkiness goes away. I think that's the part that bothers me the most about uh, the switch to third edition, like uh, Daddy Warpig was saying, yeah. that I think they cut a lot of the interaction and morale rules and stuff. Stuff that was sort of, even in second edition, it was there. Right. Um, I don't know anybody who used them. They learned the wrong lesson. They figured, oh, well, no one uses this stuff, so it must not be fun, when actually it was the presentation of those rules and the fact that they were scattered all over the three different manuals and you had to go hunting for them. I think, yeah, I'm with you. If uh, in 3rd Ed they would have just dedicated a chapter to it or put it someplace easy to find, well-indexed, it would have resolved that. Okay, I want to talk about something here. I'm going to toot my own horn for a second. Am I allowed to do that? <laughs> well, I mean, number one, it's your show, show, but number two, that's that's pretty much all you do. More ha! That's not true. I also toot other people's horns. Wow, that came out wrong, didn't it? <laughs> yep, uh, that moment of silence was for you. And now it's on tape. The internet is forever. Um, yeah, that's right. And, and I get to upload this to iTunes. This will be available on iTunes in perpetuity. Backup copy now. Okay. Yeah. People get to download this to their iTunes as long as they want. So, I want to talk about Monty Cook because apparently I'm a big Monty Cook fan when I just, I just can't stop talking about how awesome Monty Cook is. No, really. Monty Cook's Tolus, City by the Spire. And I'm mentioning this strictly to build on the topic that Brian was just mentioning about an index. Monty Cook is a big fan of travel guides. Okay. I'm a theologian. We like indexes. Anyway, go ahead. He's a big fan of city guides. 
So you go to a city, a strange city, you buy this guide with maps of the city, locations, museums, things like that, and it helps you get around. And they have apparently just really, really wizard systems for, that's a little Shadowrun lingo there for you role players, little Shadowrun lingo wizard, wizard systems for helping you get around the city. One of the things they do is that in the text of the book, He's taken this system that they use in travel guides, and he's adapted it for use in a role-playing game. So, for example, in a paragraph, uh, I'll pick one real quick. If the characters want to go storming into the Warrens, remind them that this, this part of the town is so dangerous that even the City Watch... Okay, now City Watch is in green, which tells you which part of the book it's in. It's color-coded, which tells you which part of the book that you can find all the information you need about the City Watch. You know it's in the green section of the book. But even more, on the exact same page where the words City Watch are, off to the, uh, in the margins, it says City Watch, page 150. On the same page. You don't have to go to the back of the book to look in the index. Every character, magic item, organization, location, everything in Tolus is cross-referenced right in the book, right in the margins. It is the next best thing to hyperlinking that you can get in a physical manuscript. And it is brilliant and I am going to steal it for my still-in-progress role-playing project. So, That's great. Uh, I mean, that dude can design books. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, I, I just think I think it's awesome. I love it, and uh, it is so handy. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to chase all, all over Helen Gone to find out where something is. It's right on the same page, and you can flip right to that page right there. It is a text-based, the next best thing to a text-based hyperlink. So, Cornell, you said you had some D&D questions for us. Yeah. I don't recall if I've brought this one up before, but I've recently had a death in the party. Oh, sorry, man. It was the wizard. Uh... So it felt so good. You guys don't even know. <laughs> Did a monk get him? <laughs> no, sadly. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's got to do with the like the old school, the new school stuff that we were talking about. Because uh, if you guys remember, I'm running one of the oldest uh, mega dungeons called the Caverns of Thrasia, written by um, Paul Jacquet. Um, and. At that uh, battle that I talked about earlier, uh, where they decided to wipe out the Lizardmen for being a pain in the ass, um, they encountered a, a nasty poison. The lead shaman had this poison, and I didn't really, I don't really know anything about the poison, not having memorized the entirety of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, it turns out that I I nailed uh, the wizard in the party uh, was the only person who failed to save. Uh, and he lost a point of constitution. But then a minute later, after the battle, um, he died. Like, the poison is that strong. Ouch. Hmm. Yeah, like, they were busy cleaning up and looting. 
and was like, oh yeah, and and don't forget that you know the the wizards you know dying of poison over here. Let me let me see. Go ahead, and make your save. And I'll and I this at this point I'm like and I will go look up in the book you know what this fucking poison does right. Um, so I get to the chapter and and I and I'm looking at it and I said oh he's going to be really upset when he finds out that that first constitution point is permanent. And I like <laughs> like I ran my finger over to the you know what happens a minute later if you fail your save is it's like three d six constitution damage and I'm like oh he's oh. dead. I'm like, though this guy's dead. He's just there's nothing he can do about this. Oh. Uh, sure, sure, and and of, and of course because I'm the dungeon master, I did 16 points of constitution damage to him, right? <laughs> don't don't they have a cleric? Uh, they, the okay. Well, the short story is no. The long story is the druid who normally memorizes, and they're still relatively low level, but the druid who normally memorizes delay poison had a different spell memorized because of the. A long, drawn-out, hilarious, and ultimately satisfying assault on the Lizardmen. Like she had, she had restructured her her spells just for this fight, so she oh, didn't. Okay. She, she didn't. She didn't have the delay poison, uh, which so might. They, yeah. They picked the fight they didn't have to pick. As a result, they they, you know, prepared well for this fight, but as a result, they took a casualty they didn't have to take. Right. Um, and it, it, it was it was the first death in the party in a long, long time. Um, and I love the visual. Sorry, I've, I've got to just revel in this. That the wizard you know, takes a poison dart and is like, huh, I feel a little lightheaded. Then later they're rummaging through stuff, you know, trying to find swag. And they're like, hey, you're looking at all your little pale. Like, oh, I'm a little short of breath, but I'm okay. Five minutes later, just drops dead. Um, <laughs> dead before he hits the ground. Was he at least laughing? Laughing hysterically, like he had put one over on the universe. Uh, the, the the character who knows the player was really upset about it. Um, which and and I felt bad the way that uh, the way that I presented it because it was more like an afterthought after the fight. Um, <laughs> I did I didn't play up the drama or anything. I had nearly forgotten that he was poisoned during the fight. In fact, because we were doing all the bookkeeping as far as like. You know, loot. With how many lizard men got away? And here's the best part, guys. The best part uh, in terms of overall story: the lizard shaman who threw the poison at the party ran and survived. <laughs> <laughs> you have the makings of a recurring villain there. You realize? Yes, I do. And and I hope I hope the players see it that way. But this one guy is pretty upset, and and he had a lot of complaints about like what happened and in, in the structure of the of the game and the structure of the module because it's a little, it's old school, right? Um, they're not really happy with the, and this, this isn't just like an old school module. Like this poisons in the DMG. You're probably not supposed to hit people that are lower than 10th level with it, but you picked a fight with the shaman lizard. Um, so these sort of things still exist in D and D 3.5, the sort of save and you die sort of effects. So, what are your guys' opinion on them in general, and and what sort of questions do you have about the scenario? Like, how would you handle that sort of situation, both the in-game situation and out-of-game player situation, differently? I know that's a lot, so let's start with the first one. What do you think about uh, instant death or instant death-like attacks in uh, D&D, and specifically D&D 3? Uh... Teddy Warpig, why don't you go first? Um, you know what? 
You want to pass? You launch an attack like that, casualties are going to happen. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to sell this to the players, but you launch a four-floor assault like that, casualties are going to happen. They just, you have to be aware of it. I, I appreciate that. I'm not too worried about selling it to the players. For the most part, I'm sticking to the game as it is, and um, uh, I, I want them to be afraid that death is, a, is like a possible outcome for what happens. I think, yeah. they're, I think they're more upset at the, I made one save, I didn't have the right spell memorized, so I die. Does, does that sort of thing still have its place in an they, RPG? They have learned a brutal lesson as to the utility of potions and or scrolls in uh, ensuring maximum flexibility in situations like this. Um, neutralized poison and slow poison uh, both are crucial for situations just like this. Like, they're the, they're the best kind of spells to have on a scroll because you never want to memorize them. You want to memorize more generally useful spells. Right, but but you always want to have them on hand just in case. Here, here, that, that is very tactically sound. Very wise answer. So I'm going to give a different one, which is, no, I do not like instant death effects. Here's why. Because if the character is dead, you cannot torture him psychologically slowly over the course of a campaign. See, that would be even funnier. If the 3D6, however many points of constitution loss, was more or less inevitable and he was just going to keep taking it. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're, now you're talking. Um, let me give you an example. There is at least one player in my group who, because of something I did, not to his character, but to the one that his character loved best, he still fears me, no matter what game we're playing. It, like we, we could be playing... Cyberpunk or Shadowrun or DC Heroes, let alone D&D, but all I have to do is allude to car batteries and piano wire, and he will physically cringe. And that's what you want. <laughs> well, I, I, I was I was thinking of hoping that I want them all to have fun, but that's that's another way to go. Well, I mean, yeah, if that's your thing. And and, and here's the other thing you can do. I'm not suggesting going back and changing it. Um, uh, just options. Um, putting them into a death-like trance, having to go on a quest to get them repaired, having uh, having the lizard man contact them. If they bury the body... Um, one of the great fears of the 18th century was that people would be buried alive, so they were buried in caskets with air holes in it. Um, whatever they do with the body, keep track of it. Having the lizard man contact them and saying, your friend isn't really dead, I have the antidote, but you have to do X, Y, and Z, and then having the lizard man set them up for an ambush. Um, mm. <laughs> uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways you can make them suffer as players while giving them a little bit of an out. Well, I'm, I'm going to remember that. I'm going to remember that. Oh, yeah. Definitely do it. None of them listen to the show, right? They're not going to be able to... I'm, get not, around, around here, right? I'm not aware of any of them that listen to the show. 
Okay. Um, another one thing I'm if I am a fan of though is AD&D Second Ed uh, players' option books, especially skills and powers in combat and tactics, because that introduces a point system where besides experience points, every time the characters level up, they get a certain number of just like I don't know what they're called, but skill points or just journal points that they can spend on various things. But one thing you can also do as an optional rule is spend them to like get another saving throw. And I actually had this happen in a campaign where uh, players were finding, I think, Red Abishai? Some kind of nasty demon with like a scorpion tail stinger. And yeah, fail to save, boom, instant death. And he was actually pretty central to the narrative that was going on. So, like, dude, you can, you know, spend those skill points you were saving up to level up next time, get yourself another save, and that ended up uh, pulling his fat out of the fire. So, well, you know yeah. what I do on things like that? I had that house rule, or a similar house, so I can't remember exactly how it went in my Methepolis campaign. Um, when you and, uh, and Scott and uh, Amber and... Uh, all the other people were playing. We had a rule similar to that. I can't remember how it worked, but yeah, I'm all for mechanics like that. Why? They give players a little bit of control over randomness. If they really, really have to make an attack roll because it's absolutely critical right now, and the player gets to decide when that is, then they can. They at least, or they get a second chance at making it. Okay. Um, I, I'm going to keep going with that. Why is that desirable, or why is that more desirable than uh, just letting the dice uh, go where they land? I don't know. It makes the game more fun for me. It's made the game more fun for my players. Some people don't like that, and so it's not going to work for some people. For me and my players, it's made the game more enjoyable. Uh, uh, we have... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead and finish. No, that was it. That, that was I was okay. finished. Well, we've had uh, some folks in the chat chiming in on the question... Uh, specifically Scholar Arms and Bradford Walker. And Scholar Arms, not a big fan of instant death effects. Uh, he prefers just to let players know. No, no, Scholar Arms says, I'm a big fan of instant death effects and saving throws. I think just knowing those effects exist for interesting decisions. Okay, well, I'll just let you do this. I inserted a, a not there. Okay. <laughs> so sorry, I twisted It's your me. own personal bias there. Possibly. I mean, that's... Uh, Confirmation bias. But, however, I don't think it's interesting. It, it raises an interesting question. Uh, just knowing that those effects exist for some inter interesting decisions, but that's not the same thing as using them. So what about just letting players know, hey, this this poison exists? Like, as... Um, I, I am always a big fan of keeping players absolutely aware at all times that they could die uh, at any moment. If players think that right. they are absolutely safe, unless there is an encounter where they really are absolutely safe, you know, where, they, where they're not expected to die, which is fine. That, that there should be some encounters where they're not expected to die at, at every moment. But in combat, if players think they're absolutely safe, then the combat gets boring. Players should know there really is a chance to die, and there really should be a real chance that one or more characters should die. I am a big fan of making sure players know that. Yeah, keeps them honest, as uh, Bradford said. Uh, so you said something uh, really interesting, Brian, that I wanted to go back to. 
is that you said in your example that the player who had to re-roll a saving throw was really central to the narrative. Yeah. That's precisely the sort of thing I'm trying to avoid in a D&D game. I want, I want the narrative to come from the players, and, and, and that character dying is, is more or less acceptable. Uh, so so why is, was it so important for the character to be uh, part of the narrative? Because that is how I run. I run, as I said before, I run very cinematic, very narrative-heavy games. That, that's been my party's preferred style. See, and I'm, I'm on, I, without saying that's wrong, because I don't think it is wrong, but I'm on the side of whatever makes a game enjoyable for you and your players is how you should play. Um, I'm a big fan of people playing whatever game they find enjoyable, whatever way they find it to be enjoyable. Uh, but in my personal game, I'm on the side of John, where uh, stories come out of how the players act and how the world reacts to what they're doing. You can have both. So that's a false binary option. I mean, uh, what I do is I set up the milieu, okay? I, I set up the... I do the world building. You know, I lay out, okay, this is the social, sociopolitical situation. You know, this is the time period. And let the players make their characters as if, you know, they're kind of casting themselves in a play or a movie. And then w- within specific limits, let them just freeform it. So the reason this guy was essential to the narrative was he had made himself essential. He had risen up and reached for the brass ring, which I allowed any of them to attempt to do, but it just so happened that through his own choice, he had gotten to that point. So I don't find that it perverts the experience at all. It makes it more intimate and actually gives the players more stakes. Hmm. And I've been doing this, you know, for almost going on 20 years, and it's worked really well. But again, I think that might be a subject we want to come back and revisit later. Yeah, that, that's a can of worms right there. Yeah, I think I think we could spend a whole another episode fighting on that one. Um. So I mean, you have options of either leaving him alone and de- uh, leaving him dead. Um. Well, no, they, I've already resolved all of that. Oh, okay. It, it was more of a it was more of the philosophical question and, and the technical question. Like, um, are these instant death effects okay for this kind of game? I uh, ultimately, I felt oh. I felt that they are. Yeah, uh, for, for for a lot of the reasons that you guys talked about and the guys in the chat talked about. Um, but it was really great to sort of go over what happened and your opinions and everything. Uh, the the epilogue is. Um, the player's not really happy, and he's not sure he wants to continue playing this sort of old-school-style dungeon in D&D 3.5. Um, he, wants, he, he, would, he would like it if I switched to D&D 5, which he says supposedly doesn't have all those instant death effects. Um, in-game, the, the epilogue is uh, they chose to go with uh, Resurrection as the party's you know, anywhere from level 3 to 5, so they finally have the resources to afford that. Um, they decided to go with a reincarnation, um, and they had a nice. Oh, no. they, they had they had a nice little side quest with a local druid elder, um, which culminated in a, a reincarnation spell. Sadly, the reincarnation table in 3.5 isn't as awesome as it was in AD&D Second Edition. Uh, so the uh, wizard has come back as a half orc, and who knows if he'll play again. 
<laughs> Delicious. Have you have you ever said I wanted to play a half orc wizard, but I don't want to take the negative two intelligence? That's how you do it. Pro tip, everybody. Uh, I uh, yeah, I don't I don't mind instant death effects. Uh, you just, I mean, hell, being in combat with uh, uh, to take it into the modern world, being in combat with assault rifles is an instant death effect. I mean, you know. Someone throws a grenade and you're in the wrong place. That's an instant death effect. Welcome to the real world. So, uh, that's just uh, that's just the way I roll. But on the other hand, I I like hero point mechanics and and the like because they give players a little bit of added luck to to avoid things like that. But not all that much. You have to be careful about when and how you use them. And uh, if you run into combat foolishly, if you waste them, then you're going to be left. Hurting when uh, when they really really critically count. So, um, do you have uh, any last any last words be before we go, Brian? Yes. Once again, make sure to check out my books. I've got Ethereal, the uh, book that got me nominated for Campbell this year. Oh, also, speaking of which, today is the last day to vote in the Hugos if you haven't done so yet. Love is real. I will. Uh, I'll try to get that. I'll try to put that link in the description below the video so uh, people can uh, people can jump. Yeah, they've, until tonight at 11:59 p.m. I'm not sure which time zone. If it's central because it's Mid America Con, I don't know. You could always wait to the last minute and hope. Yeah. I have tweeted that out, by the way. So if you're you know paying attention to the twitters. Uh, have tweeted it out, so the links uh, the links gone out, um, and I did in fact I haven't voted for the uh, retro Hugos, but uh, I have voted in the regular old Hugos, so uh, I have done my duty. Any any last thoughts, uh, John? Before we go, no. Thanks for talking that out with me, guys. Looking forward to more D and D episodes, and thanks for listening, guys. All right, uh, this is uh, Geek Gab. We are. Uh, syndicated. You can catch us on YouTube at our homepage, is.gd slash geekgab. That is is.good slash geekgab. That'll take you right to the channel on YouTube. Or you can just search on YouTube for geekgab. We are also in iTunes. Do a search for iTunes and you can subscribe to the podcast right there. Um, if you go into the description, uh, either underneath the video or in uh, iTunes, you will get links to uh, Brian's books, you'll get links to our blogs, and uh, you also get links to what we're talking about on the show. This has been uh, Geek Gab for Sunday, July 31st, 2016. We, your hosts, are signing off for tonight, but don't worry, we will be back.